Hey, welcome to Element if you are new. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you and apparently a million on stage as well. <laughs> Judy Lee says, tell the band not to jump up and down. The Bibles may come flying off. And I'll be like, oh, you're going to sound like charismatic church if that happens. Here comes the Bibles. I don't know why I'm doing this now. This should be second service when we don't live stream it. Okay, let me start over. Welcome to Element if you are new. <laughs> uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables around the room. They look like this. They are only half sheets throughout the summer. And what you're going to get is the verses we're covering, a place for notes. And on the bottom, if you have a question, as we walk through some things, you can write down that question. And at some point, whether it is in a talking element or from up here, we will answer that question. If it's really good, I may save it for another series that we do in a couple years. On the back, you get a short little summation of what we're talking about, and then you get a few questions to talk to your friends, your family, your gospel community about on the bottom of that. Uh, it's kind of funny. Donald was telling me how they set up the camera for the live stream, which may look really weird, because on the live stream, it says, read a Bible verse without context. You don't see the never on top of that. Oh. <laughs> I, there you go. Oh, click. <sighs> anyway, if you have a smart device, you can, download an app, you can download an app called Uversion. When you download the app, it will just say Bible. You click on more and then events. We will come up by GPS in your smart device. You will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And I'm going to try to be much more focused now. Uh, this is Psalm 137, verse 9. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being a gracious and good God to us that there are truths that we get to look at in the scriptures that lead us to you. God, I ask that we wouldn't be distracted by all the voices around us, but we would be enthralled with who you are, uh, the gospel, the good news that has been spoken that we get to live in. So teach us to be those who trust you and walk with you and honor you with our lives. Amen. Have a seat. Right, so we are doing this new series called Never Read a Bible Verse. I actually took that title out of a book by Dan Kimball. I was reading the book. The book is actually called How Not to Read the Bible. And there was this one little section in one of the chapters with that, Never Read a Bible Verse. And I thought, that's, that's a great idea for, for a summer series, that little thing right there. The impetus started, because I have a friend, his name's Nick. And before Nick moved to Santa Maria, they lived down south. And they had this church. And this church did a series called Misquoted the Verses we violate. And I thought, ooh, the verses we violate, that sounds like a great series. And I started to kind of work some things up for that. And then I realized this isn't just about one verse. I have these ideas of concepts that people have run the wrong direction with. And so I really thought never read a Bible verse was a much better idea because it can cover a lot of different things. I think Christians and non-Christians have done a whole lot of damage to a whole lot of people by not understanding the things in the Bible in context. So what we want to do throughout this series is help you to understand better why the Bible is written the way that it is, and hopefully you can walk out having some answers to some questions people may have asked you or you may have had in the past. So often, sometimes you will hear Christians say, oh, they just need to read the Bible. But what if somebody starts to read the Bible and they get confused? Uh, Penn Gillette, a Penn and Teller fame, the magician, actually once said, reading the Bible is the fast track to atheism. 
And instead of being angry that he said that, you got to ask, why did he said that? What does he mean by that? Because sometimes people read the Bible, and if they don't understand it in context, they can get the opposite ideas. And so today, really, does the Bible make atheists? That, that, that's our question. There are many things in the Bible that are written that we do not understand in the midst of our own cultural context. We are typically trying to take American culture and lay it upon the Bible and then try to interpret it that way, and it doesn't work. I have had people sit in my office and we start talking, and they will say, I have a hard time believing, or I no longer believe because of what's in the Bible. And I say, oh yeah, like what? And I genuinely want to know, because I have gone through the Bible, I've had questions, I've sought out answers in the midst of it. And when people say, I don't want to trust the Bible or believe in God, it usually comes down to four big things. One of them is genocide in the Old Testament, where it seems like God is saying, just kill everybody. Another one is slavery in the Old Testament, where it seems like the Bible is condoning it. It doesn't. We will talk about that. Some people have a problem because of how they think the Bible views women. Actually, the Bible views women in a way that gives them great dignity and worth. But I would say 95% of the time, when people have questions about the Bible, it usually comes down to where God has said, this is not good for you, don't do it, and they want to do it anyway. And it's like, I don't want to follow God because he told me not to do that thing. That's usually the biggest one. But I have these discussions, and I think they are good discussions to have. And I think as we walk through this series, it might give us a little bit of compassion for those who are questioning. It might happen to you, or this may actually have been you. And so today and next week, what we're going to do is a little bit of an overview, some background foundation before we hit all of the questions. Like uh, twice during the summer, I'm going to do a question and answer. So if you have some questions that hadn't gotten answered, come and bring those. That'll be after the 1045 service. Just come and throw them at me. I'm going to give you an hour. After an hour, I'm going to be done. i got to go eat lunch with my wife. But I'll give you an hour in that. I mean, it kind of starts like with the verse we started with. Psalm 137, verse 9. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Out of context, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? Yeah, okay. Okay, so what you have to understand in context, this is a psalm that's written while the Israelites are in Babylon. And the, the captors in Babylon are saying, sing us songs of your homeland so they can mock and make fun of them. And this thing of blessed be he who smacks your little one's heads against the rocks, this is what the Babylonians did to the Israelites. And this will be also what happens with the Medes and the Persians will do when they take over the Babylonians. And it's written in song and in poetry form. And sometimes it's very raw. And so it is not saying you need to go out and bash little kids' heads against rocks. It's saying this is what happened. And when it happened, all the Babylonians were like, yeah, this is so great. Oh, you're happy because you did that. And then the Medes and the Persians come in. They're going to do the same thing to you Babylonians that you just did. It's pointing out what has happened, what will happen, how they will treat one another when that happens. And it's written very, just very strong in the emotional context of it. But it is not telling you to go and do that. You have to understand the context. I worked with youth for a lot of years, and I've seen kids go through children's ministries and youth ministries. Then they go to college, and they hit some college professor who has all these questions about the Bible that they've never even thought of before. And they come back and talk to me, and they go, hey, how come you didn't tell me this was in the Bible. And I think I always did a pretty good job of telling people what was in the Bible. And so they'll say, why didn't you tell me this? And I'm like, I did. But you were just too busy making googly eyes at your boyfriend or girlfriend to, to listen. That doesn't always help in the middle of the conversation. But at Element, you know, we don't shy away from hard topics or hard passages in the Bible. It's one of the reasons we walk through the Bible the way that we do, because it forces us to talk about some very difficult things. 
So part of the reason we're going to do this series is to address some of the things that people have valid questions over. But as we start, I also want to tell you that many times people asking questions do not actually want the answers. They don't. As an example, uh, Christopher Hitchens, who was an atheist before he died, uh, mocked Christian belief by sarcastically saying, my paraphrase, why don't more ignorant people wander around the desert making up more stories about God? Because that's how he views it. You have these disciples saying Jesus rose from the grave and they're just these ignorant people who wandered around the desert. And he says this because he refuses to look at the evidence for the crucifixion or the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus' death and resurrection, what we have to understand, it didn't take place in the middle of nowhere. It took place in a large city in front of a lot of people. It wasn't hidden. It couldn't really be more public. The Jews had always been this brutally honest people. it's one of the reasons the scriptures get so much, you know, stuff thrown at it from people because they're like, oh, the Bible, all the heroes of the Bible, they're terrible people. Exactly. That's the point. None of us are saved by our own goodness. We're all terrible and God rescues us to restore us to who we were meant to be. The Jews were brutally honest about that. And so what you have is this people who were fiercely monotheistic. They would not believe in paganism in any regard and yet they start worshiping Jesus as God. When there's no social, family, political, or economic benefit, they bow their knee and they say Jesus is Lord. And so when we talk about the Bible making atheists, it's not just reading the Bible and not understanding. Sometimes there's a predisposition to not want to believe. So let me give you a little bit of foundation as we go in this. So I'm going to talk to you first about what faith is before we start talking about a couple things. First off, when we talk about faith as described in the Bible, it is not just how we describe it in America as mere belief. Hebrews 11 and 1 will say, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. When you take that out of context, never read a Bible verse, many churches have wrongly taught that faith is just mere belief in something invisible. That's all that it is. Most people who are non-Christians will say, I can't believe in something that's not verifiable. Because for a long time, Christians told a lot of people that faith is believing in something you can't see. You just feel it. And then there becomes this assumption then that when religious people go to church, we switch our minds from intellect and knowledge to opinion and belief. Like there is this idea that we walk throughout the world using our reason and our five senses. And then we walk into church and we just click that off. And we go with, what? oh, what does my heart feel like? This is what I'm going to do. Nowhere in the Bible does it describe faith like that. As a matter of fact, when Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, it actually then goes on and shows how God, in tangible ways, brought about the things that He said, the reality of His promises, that they didn't know what was going to happen, but God is good for His promises in tangible reality. John 14, verse 1 says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. But that only says that in two different translations. One's called the New Living, and one was the New International Version from 1984. Every other version says, Believe in God. Believe also in me. Which is a fine translation, but it doesn't actually work with our modern ideas of what believe actually means. Because when you ask people what faith is, they will say, Oh, it's just belief. The word we translate in the Bible as belief, as faith, is this Greek word called and it means trust. It is trust. Faith is not grounded in some nebulous belief in something where we muster up enough emotions to feel a certain way about something. It is grounded in the one in whom we believe. There is an object of our faith who is Christ himself. And then we have an act of faith where we believe. Faith comes because the object of our faith is worthy. 
And faith in Jesus exploded in a very reasoned society. Why? Because a dead man came back to life and they all knew it. And yes, the, the thing that says, oh, illiterate people believed in Jesus. Well, that's true. They did. It still happens today. But even the most educated of the day believed as well, from religious scholars to doctors to judges to government officials. And sometimes when we talk about, you know, believing in Jesus, people go, well, yeah, I could believe in Jesus, but I don't know about that God of the Old Testament. Like, they're two different people. Like, people think, oh, Jesus is so nice with his Michael Bolton feathered hair and his robes and his sandals. You know, he wants to rub my back and tell me how great I am. But that God of the Old Testament, he's like a junior high girl hopped up on emotion. I love you. I hate you. I hug you. I'm going to smite you. I don't know what to do with that. This is why we walk through books of the Bible, so I can show you that God is consistent and all those characters. Caricatures of God being you know, capricious in the Old Testament are just caricatures. They're not true. If we want to see who God is, we look at Jesus Christ. That's how we know who God is. And when I say this, I'm not telling you that faith doesn't include feelings, because it does. But faith is not just a big old bag of feelings. And many times today, what we will do is we will put up science against faith, like they're opposed to one another. And they're not. It's like the Bible versus science. I know some schools and I know some Sunday school instructors who are afraid of science. But for me, I believe that science can help us to understand the world that God wants us to know. This is one of the reasons why science came about the way that we did. Because Christians believe that the world was knowable because God wanted us to know it. And that's how science actually gets started. Having faith does not mean we have to know everything in its most minute detail. Like science is actually what is called a consensus of theory. When people say, oh, they're science deniers or you're a science denier. That's funny because science denies science because that's how science works, right? There's what is called comprehensive knowledge and apprehensive knowledge. Now, comprehensive knowledge, I know I'm giving you a lot of information, but just go with me, guys. Comprehensive knowledge means you know everything that there is to know about a subject. None of us are ever going to have true comprehensive knowledge. But then there is what is called apprehensive knowledge. And that's that's when you know enough about something to trust the truth of it. Now, a few years ago, I gave you the uh, example of airplanes. Like, there are some people who have lots of faith, love to fly. They strap themselves to that middle, metal tube where they're like, woohoo, it falls out of the air at any moment. They're like, whatever, I trust the airplane. There are other people who white knuckle it everywhere. One has a lot of faith, one has little faith, but their trust is in the plane, and that plane is going to get them both where they need to go. Now, one person could have comprehensive knowledge, how every nut and bolt goes together, wind speed, flaps, how the air works, how it takes off, how it lands, and all that. But you don't need comprehensive knowledge to fly. What you need is apprehensive knowledge, a knowledge where you may not know much more than uh, it's got engines and it goes through the air, and that, that's all you know. But that same plane will get both people where they need to go. So before we get to all of the questions about the Bible that makes people think they can't believe it, got to turn them into atheists when they read it, let's be clear about what Christianity is. Let me whittle this down for you. Christianity is a truth claim about historical events that can be investigated just like any other event in history. Let me say this again. Christianity is a truth claim about historical events that can be investigated just like any other event in history. And that gets so lost today when we talk about faith because of our divided culture. Again, where we want to see reason and logic on one side and faith, which is defined as just believing without evidence, on the other side. Christianity is tied to history in a way that is so deep and so profound that history literally centers around the moment of Jesus living upon this earth. 
Now, the church reformers, what they would do is they would define saving faith in three ways. There are three, three parts. The first one is what they call notitia. Notitia simply means knowledge. Knowledge. This is knowledge about the content of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ as taught in the scriptures. It's wide element. We talk about what Jesus did all the time. Our faith needs an object, and our, that object will be defined by our knowledge of it. But our knowledge is always going to be apprehensive knowledge. We're not going to have complete knowledge of who God is, though people walk around acting like they do. It's apprehensive knowledge. When people say things like, God is what I feel like he is. Well, that's not the God that's defined in the Bible. Now you're like, oh, he's really feel like he is. I feel like God is this today. Well, you know what? That could be the pizza you ate last night or the chili. My God is such a volatile God. Take some Tums. Maybe your God will settle down. (laughs) People say, this thing's God. That thing's God. Everybody goes to heaven. Nobody goes to heaven. There's all kinds of opinions. But what do we need to know? Notitia. What we need to know is the truth. And the scriptures are true. Some people think that I I don't like the scriptures because they're not telling me every little detail of how to live my life. Well, the scriptures are not about you. They're only about us insofar that it shows us our sin and our necessity for Jesus. The scriptures are and about and point to Jesus. John 14, 6. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, then shouldn't we want to be able to see Jesus in the scriptures? Of course. John 5, 39 and 40, Jesus says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus is true. The scriptures are truth, so we can have real knowledge. The second thing they talked about was this thing called a census, which simply means assenting. We have that knowledge, and so we have intellectual acceptance of the truth about Jesus. We receive it, we stop trying to fight it, and we live in it because it's true. Then the third thing is what is called fiducia, and that means faith. Faith is personal reliance and trust in God and His good news in the gospel. God takes our sin at the cross as it is laid upon Jesus. Jesus gives us His righteousness, which brings true salvation. We trust in Jesus as He has been revealed in the scriptures, and those three things are meant to go together. Knowledge assenting faith and it goes hand in hand to how we live our lives this is why true faith when we talk about it all the way through the book of james is that true faith filters down into how we live our lives every day our faith is meant to be practical and how we live that out because jesus is right and true And like which James says, our faith is useless if it's not lived out practically. And don't get me wrong, information alone will not save you. It's Jesus who saves us. Again, back in James chapter 2, verse 19, you're told the demons believe and they shudder. They they know who God is probably better than we are, but they don't have saving faith because they don't follow. Now, are there feelings involved in faith? Yes. Yes, there are. But our faith is a reasonable faith. And part of our reasonableness is having the right information. This is why we trust what the scriptures say. And that is why when we hear the truth about who God is and his character, that's where we start. We trust that first. There's going to be a talking element blog that goes up this week. And in that talking element blog, I'm sitting down with Michelle G., who had a question about the book of John and something that takes place in it. And the first thing I said was, okay, we've got to start in a place. We know who God is, so what do we know this is not telling us? Because we first know who God is. That's where we start. We trust who God is. Before all the things we look at where people don't understand the scriptures and are never read a Bible verse thing, we must first see who God is and trust Him. The problem in our culture and the natural inclination of our hearts is we want to shut out the true God and go with what we feel is true rather than what is true. And information, until it is practiced as faith, is never going to bring transformation into our lives. God's truth has to change us. 
I had this philosophy teacher in, in college, and he read the Bible front to back all the time just to get more information out of it, not because he wanted to believe, just to find new ways to find things out of context to mock and belittle Christians. Sound a little bit like Christopher Hitchens a bit. All right, so the book that I'm talking about by Dan Kimball, he writes about this woman who comes to him after one of their church services. She had recently become a Christian. Uh, she's just starting out in her journey, so she decides to read the Bible. A very, very good thing. But as she began, she started to grow a little bit confused. Her excitement for Christianity started to wane and shrink a little bit. Why? Because she's reading the Bible. Could it lead her to a place where she's an atheist at that point? This is what happens. She opens the Bible. She starts in the book of Genesis. She's concerned. The Bible says creation was done in six days when science has shown it's billions of years old. Not understanding the conversations around that or what that can mean. We're going to talk about that during this series. Then she gets to Genesis 3 and there's a talking snake. She's like, is a talking snake? A serpent? What's up with that? You go even farther, there's a talking donkey. And if you're reading the King James Version, it says the word ass. So that's even more weird, right? Then she reads how some people live to be more than 900 years old. It's like, what? And then you have Noah. He has these animals that come to him by pairs, like he's Dr. Doolittle or the Pied Piper. What's going on with that? And then God brings this flood, Noah's Ark, upon the earth. Like she's seen the little kids' motifs where people put Noah's Ark on their kids' walls and all the animals got their heads out the window like, woo, we're on a boat ride. We're on a, I'm on a boat. I'm on a boat ride. You know, just going around like that. And really, that's where God killed everybody. And she's like, that, that's not what that shows. Then you meet a guy named Abraham, and God promises Abraham, you're going to have a son. You know, many years later, we look back looking at that, and we oh, he's going to have a son to a son to a son that will eventually lead to God's son, Jesus. But you're going to have a son through your wife, Sarah. They don't believe it a couple decades later. And so Sarah says, why don't you just have sex with my maid and make a baby with her? And Abraham's like, okay. <laughs> and he does it. And then a little bit after that, you have a woman that looks back where the city's being destroyed, and she turns into a pillar of salt. And then it goes back to Abraham's story, and he actually has that promised son through that promised wife, and he goes up to a mountain to sacrifice his son. What is going on with that? And she said she stopped reading the Bible because she's afraid of what else she would find, because that's in the first half of the first book. <laughs> She started so excited about who God is and her new faith in Jesus. She surrenders her life to Christ because that's the culmination of the scriptures. She learns about his grace and forgiveness. But she had no idea these things were in the Bible. What is going on with those things that are there? And so she started to doubt and wonder, did I join a cult? How can intelligent people believe these things? See, this is why we must be able to relate to people, even if we don't have the answers. You've got to be able to relate to maybe their questioning and their wondering so we can help. We don't just say, God said it, I believe it, that's enough for me. That's great if it's enough for you, but God calls us to understand that our faith is a reasonable faith. There are lots of people who will never read the Bible like this woman. Maybe you've never read the Bible like this woman did. And you will, though still in our society, you will hear arguments and memes and YouTube videos of people railing against the scriptures and things they don't understand. And we must take our faith, our trust in Christ, seriously enough to know what's in the Bible, and many times, more importantly, why it's there. Guys, there are oddities in the Bible. There really are. There are worship rituals that include killing an animal and putting some blood on your earlobe or on your, on your big toe. Uh, when you have mold in your house and you clean it out in the Old Testament, you, you kill a bird and sprinkle its blood around your house seven times. Like, really? Doesn't that make it dirtier than it was with the mold? And what the poor bird do to you in the midst of that anyway? And then a prophet stretches out on top of a dead boy who sneezes seven times and comes back to life. 
all Old Testament. And then even Jesus, you know, loving, graceful Jesus in the book of Revelation comes back with a robe that is dipped in blood. Like, what is that? I mean, you may not have had any questions about the Bible, and now you do. You've got like <laughs> 10, right? <laughs> what are those things? If you wonder about the validity of what the Bible teaches, if you can trust it or have faith in it, the answer is yes. Because there are good answers to every single one of those verses and questions you might have. We're going to talk about the origins of the Bible a bit. We're going to talk about things from a correct cultural perspective so we can understand what's actually going on, what God is actually saying, and it's not to kill a bird to get rid of mold. Because I'll tell you, I would not be up here teaching you the things that I teach you if I did not believe the Bible, if I did not trust Jesus, if I did not think that our lives are made complete as we worship who He is. And it is so easy to get sidetracked. I do not do what I do for the money or the prestige because if you've been to Element, you know there's not a whole lot of either. Uh, but, but, but I have wrestled with many of these same questions, and I will tell you there are good answers to all of it. And Christianity is definitely not a cult. It's not wishful thinking. It's not a mindless religion. It's about the grace of God who rescued us from all the ways that we have destroyed relationship with Him and others. And if you are new to Element today, and you, you don't know me from, from Adam, this may mean nothing to you, but I would never mislead you or anyone into believing something I know to be false or untrustworthy. Uh, Dan Kimball wrote this, that we can say with confidence that we can intelligently and with faith believe that the scriptures are from God. There are good responses to every single one of those questions that people have had. There are questions that have been brought up throughout history that have been answered time and time again. And every few years, the same questions seem to keep coming up again. Many of the crazy things you hear about Bible verses in the Bible are, can take, are taken completely out of context Hence, our title, Never Read a Bible Verse. And so we're going to give you some basic principles next week for how to read your Bible in context to make sense of some of the craziness, then hop into and talk to some of those passages. But to give you a little bit just to whet your appetite, okay? I'll give you a little one right here. Um, yeah, not really in the last 10 years, but kind of before that, when the King James Version was more popular, people would make fun of the Bible because it talks about unicorns. Like, what? Yeah. One person wrote this. Unicorns are mentioned nine times in the Bible. Cats are mentioned zero times. And that is all you need to know about the Bible. <laughs> and I thought, all you need, really, this book that has changed lives for millennia, and all we need to know is that cats aren't mentioned? That sounds like a plus to me, but I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Numbers 23, verse 22. God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a unicorn. Job 39, verse 9. Will the unicorn be willing to serve thee or abide by thy crib? Psalm 29, verse 6. He maketh them also to skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian like a young unicorn. So there you have it. Did um, Noah take them onto the ark? I, I, I don't know. This is all based on information out of context. So all those verses are from what is called the King James Version of the Bible. The King James Version of the Bible was authorized by King James I of England. It utilized some of the best texts they had at the time. Sometimes people will say, you can't trust your Bible. It's a translation of a translation of a translation. It's not. We go back to the earliest manuscripts. As a matter of fact, the, the ESV that we use at Element, I think is probably one of the best translations that are out there going back to the original manuscripts as close as we can get. But the King James didn't have as many of those early manuscripts as we did. And so what you'll see is some cultural things in that. You will see it says, thee and thou. 
Like, you know, these and those. We don't do those anymore. What you, we use is he, her, them, all that. And it makes sense for the people you're translating for. Now, anyway, so they're trying to find out how to translate this word unicorn. And so they go back to the Hebrew. The Hebrew word is a word called rahim. And it references an animal that the writers and the original hearers would know. But that word is written 1,400 to 700 years ago. Scholars say it references an animal that was very large with a prominent horn. So when the King James people go to translate that, they start looking. How did other people translate this. They eventually go to this thing called the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is accepted by Jewish people. And in there, that word is translated as monokiros. And that literally translates as one horn or unicorn, an animal with one horn. They did not choose it to represent some mystic, you know, mythical beast in kids' cartoons, because kids' cartoons weren't even around at that point. They pictured something like a Unicorn, which interestingly, the scientific name for a one-horn uh, Indian rhinoceros is Rhinoceros unicornis, and no one is making fun of the Indian people for that. The ancient Assyrians have a record of an extinct one-horned oxen called a Rimu or an Arok. There are other now extinct animals that had a large single horn as well. And so modern translations, if you look up these verses, it'll just say wild ox, because that is much more appropriate in context. Cultural changes over time with how we use words and what words mean sometimes can bring some confusion into the Bible. And so it makes a difference of how you translate those texts or when you read those texts. Were there unicorns in the Bible? Yep, sure were, but just not like those who mock it say. And here is why this matters for us. There are a lot of people today who don't know or understand the Bible, and yet they claim it is filled with nonsense. And I will tell you, that is nonsense. It is nonsense. It may look convincing when you first hear it, when you first see it, but I'll tell you, in true context, it does not mean what people think it means. It is why studying the Bible is so important for us as a people, because I said, ultimately, the Bible will go and point to Jesus as our Savior and our Redeemer. It shows us who we are and who He is in His person. And if you forget everything that I say this morning, just know this, the Bible's whole point is to lead us to God's promised Redeemer who is found in Jesus Christ, that we all need rescue and redemption, and it's found in Christ alone. And I don't know what school you've been to or what teachers you've had in your life or what they've said to you or what questions that has brought up to you about the Bible. But I will tell you, the scriptures are trustworthy. The scriptures are true. It is being revealed to us in a way that is all meant to point and lead us to the person of Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our Redeemer, as our Lord. And this is why the Jews, as that brutally honest people, when they spoke about the things that the patriarchs and the heroes in the Old Testament scriptures did, every time you see those people fail. And it is not because that they're trying to lift up these failures as being wonderful. They're showing you everyone fails. But here's the beauty. Our God didn't fail. Our God came and rescued us in the midst of our failure. Our God has called him to himself, and this is why every week, part of what we do at Element to remind and reset us is to take us to a place of communion. Communion is where we remember that God is good and true for his promises, that everything he said from the beginning of the book of Genesis all the way through the end is pointing to the moment of the cross, the gospel, the good news, the salvation of who we are. 
This is why you take that cracker and you break it. It's a reminder of Christ's body that was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice as a reminder of Jesus' blood that was shed for you and me because we couldn't save ourselves. Our bodies, our own sacrifice, no matter how much you want to do, can never save you. It cannot restore you to relationship with the good and holy God. Only Jesus can. And so that's what Jesus did. Restored us to himself. And so we invite you to take communion. If you need a gluten-free option, it's on the back table. Also, if you want a single-use cup so you don't have to you know, touch where everybody else is, if you're still worried about COVID and stuff, there are single-use cups on that back table there as well. But we do this as a reminder that it is God who is faithful. Because we will, we will have doubts. We will have questions. But you know what the beauty about that is? Is we are not saved because we have all of our questions answered. We're not saved when we no longer have doubts. We're saved because God has stepped into our lives and saved us even many times in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our failures, in the midst of wondering if God is actually as good as he says he is. And I'll tell you, he is as good as he says he is. If you need prayer this morning, uh, you can grab Sarah at the Welcome Center. She'll connect you with some people uh, that we have signed up actually to pray with you. And if you have a lot of questions or if you've been struggling with the Bible or struggling with people asking you questions about the Bible, if you can believe it, we would love to be able to pray with you. And if you have questions, write those on the bottom of those sermon notes and throw it in the offering boxes. And we'll make sure we get to those either at a talking element or a service or at the Q&A or things that we do to make sure that you can have some answers to some of the questions that you have. I will tell you this, is there have been questions that have been asked for 2,000 years now, and every single one of those questions, I have never heard a new one. They've all been asked and answered multiple times, and God is trustworthy, and He is true. And if you need prayer, we'd love to be able to pray with you. There's offering boxes next to every door. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. That's why we do it. We don't pass a plate. And I encourage you to just grab those sermon notes and maybe those few questions on the backside. Just, just walk through those and be honest enough about the, the questions or doubts that you might have. And be open enough to, to look at what the answer could be. Because again, sometimes our questions are not about things we don't understand. We question simply because we don't want to have to trust Jesus. We question because we want to be able to say, no, I don't have to believe that. I'm going to do what I want to do. But I will tell you, every time we run after ourselves, we destroy our lives. And this is why the good news of God's grace steps in where we are and draws us and calls us to himself. Because he is our rescuer and he is our redeemer. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us as a people to be those who remember your goodness, who trust in your kindness. And it has been grace and kindness that you have been trustworthy and reliable in the things that you have said since the scriptures were first written down. Father, we thank you for the truth that you have revealed to us. And I ask that you would give us the knowledge of that, that we would assent to it, and then we begin to walk in faith, that these things would come together in our lives. Not that we have all the answers, because we're never going to have true comprehensive knowledge about everything. But we can have knowledge where we apprehend what you have done, what you have said. And begin to walk in faith in the things that you have said. Father, teach us in our lives to have you be the center of our vision. The one we look to. The one that we trust. Because so often in our own lives, when we trust ourselves, we fail. And the beauty of your good news is that our failure doesn't 
leave us in a place where you can't have a relationship with you. We get to have a relationship with you because of what your son has done. So teach us to have eyes that look towards Jesus, to trust him for all that we are, and to know that whatever questions we have, there are good answers, and we can trust you for them. We ask that in your son's good name. Amen. So I'll Phil drop the curtains. As he does, just take a couple moments before you come and take communion and just be honest for God. God, these are the questions that I have. This is kind of what goes on in my own heart. Maybe just take a couple moments and ask God to teach you how to be truthful and honest before him about maybe the things that you are feeling. Maybe you come from a church tradition who said you're never allowed to have a question. You're never allowed to have a doubt. Well, that's not us. And it's certainly not the scriptures. You got two-thirds of the entire book of Psalms are songs written about, God, where are you? God, what's going on? God, I don't get it. And they cry out and they ask questions. Questions are good. They are good because they can show us the honesty of our own hearts and the things that we are struggling with. So for you, take a couple moments, say, God, honestly, right now, what are my questions? What am I struggling with? And then say, God, show me what those answers are. Teach me to trust you. Not that I have to comprehend everything, but teach me to live in a way that I apprehend what you want me to know so I can live in that in ways that worship and glorify you.